This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're bringing you a special Seeds for Success episode as we farewell our longest serving podcaster, Cal Thompson. After two years of working on the Seeds for Success podcast in planning and development, Cal is hanging up the microphone and moving on from local land services to pursue his own farming and consulting businesses. We can't thank Cal enough for all the great stories he has uncovered and brought to us through Seeds for Success. In this episode, we learn more about how Cal approaches running his own cattle breeding and trading business, where you guessed it, tropical grasses feature heavily. Cal explains how the balance between an advisor and a farmer has presented its own challenges, but has also provided him a unique perspective that's been so valuable to him as the family business has continued to grow. You'll also hear Cal reflect on what he's personally taken away from all the farmers he has met and interviewed over the last two years. The opportunity to learn, challenge, and gain greater understanding of productive agriculture in the Central West has been one of Cal's career highlights. Cal sat down one last time behind the microphone with our other hosts, Rowan Leach and Tim Bartamote, for this farewell chat about farming, agronomy, and all things podcasting. Today, Tim and I are here with Cal Thompson for Seeds for Success. We're doing something a little differently today. Tim and I are actually going to be interviewing Cal. So Cal, welcome to the Seeds for Success podcast. Thanks, Rowan. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. You're welcome, mate. It's a privilege to have you. Mate, during the week in a team meeting, Tim mentioned that you were passing on. (laughs) Geez, don't tell (laughs) us you're dying, are you, mate? Yeah, well, that was news to me. Thanks, Tim. No, I'm moving on is probably the word. Tim was aiming for. I'm about to finish up my role with LLS. And what are you moving on to, mate? I'm going to spend a bit more time at home on the farm and I'm going to be doing a bit of consulting. Yeah, so it was a few mixed feelings amongst our team when we found out the news the other day, both excited and also sad. We've obviously enjoyed having you part of the crew and it's been a lot of fun. You've done a lot of work, interviewed a lot of people. We thought with this podcast, we put the shoe on the other foot in a word and interview you as one of our farmers. And so we thought we could tell us a bit about your farming operation out at Sunny Coonabarabran. Yeah, thanks, Tim. And I have to say, I was probably more nervous about doing this interview than any interview I've done before, but I'll try and do my best. Watch out, Lee Sales. We're going after you, mate. (laughs) (laughs) My wife, Maria, and I have a beef property. We're just south of Coonabarabran. Nearly 10 years ago, we bought 570 acres and we're running cattle on it. And in the last 12 months, we've bought another 1,000 acres. We run beef cattle. We were mainly Angus prior to the droughts. Through the drought, we more or less destocked everything. Now we're buying whatever's comes up on Auctions Plus. I think we've got pretty much every breed on the farm except Belter Galloway's. And we do a bit, fair bit of forage crops as well. I'd assume it's 100% wall-to-wall tropical grasses, mate, your place? No, we're definitely trying to increase the tropical grasses. Our first block did have quite a bit of digit and console of grass on it. But yeah, we've been cleaning paddocks up, 
to say tropical grasses, but on our heavier country where the intention for it is more towards a loosened phalaris type pasture. I do spruce tropicals a lot, but there's definitely areas on our farm at least that are too good of dirt for wasting it on trivial grasses. Gee, that must have hurt coming out of him, yeah? <laughs> and, mate, your first purchase block, you're still running that in conjunction with the new farm and how are those interacting? Yeah, so there's one property in between us. It's not a big block, but it means that we can't easily move stock from one to the other, so we move stock on the road with all the appropriate LLS permits that you need to do that. We're running them as one farm now, so... With our breeders, we try and run them all in one big mob and I wouldn't say that we're rotational grazing in the sense of time rotational grazing, but we move on feed and feed quantity and feed quality and trying to match that to our livestock requirements. But on average, I reckon we're probably moving weekly. It's just the way the season's running at the minute. And so how are you finding that balance between trying to be a farmer on the weekends maybe and working full time? Obviously not. Good. That's why I've had to uh, <laughs> ch- make some changes. No, it is a struggle to do both well. My wage and my income comes from LLS and so that's got to be my priority. Like there's set times that I have to be at work doing my job and there's lots of people that rely on me doing my job well, I assume. So yeah, that sort of has to be the priority. Then you find yourself sometimes chasing your tail a bit and not getting things done exactly how you'd want them. This year at the start of summer, we had St. John's wort really explode on our place. I was a bit disappointed. Our original block, we hadn't had St. John's wort on before and we controlled every plant that we could find on it. But the other block, I did struggle a bit to get to every paddock. The other compromises to your weekends, generally farming and not family. I've got two boys and they spend a lot of time out on motorbikes and in cattle yards and stuff like that. But It's a bit of a compromise for family time. So one of the things that we've talked about a bit in terms of being an ag advisor while also doing a bit of farming on the side, can you tell us a bit about your experience in having to apply all the extension work that you do on the day-to-day and then turning up in your own farm and being, well, there's a few things that weigh in here. It's not always as easy as this is the right way to go about things. Yeah, I guess as an advisor, you can always give the best advice. That might not take into all the factors that a farmer has upon themselves. So you might be giving the best advice in terms of control, for instance. And technically that is the best advice, but it doesn't take into account that it's Friday afternoon and they've told their partner that they're willing to take the kids to the beach for the weekend, or it doesn't take into account that they're about to move stock into that paddock. And so a grazing withhold is going to cause problems. So It reminds me of when I was a commercial agronomist turning up at a a guy's farm on a Friday just before school holidays and saying, yeah, we're going to have to hit all these fallows and him saying, oh, I am going to have to tell my wife I can't come on holidays. There's the right way to do it, the perfect technical way to do it. That's got to fit in with everything else that's going on on a farm. And do you think it makes someone a better advisor if they understand that practical aspect from the farmer's perspective? I think so. It can make you more relatable. When you're standing in front of a group of farmers and saying, well, this is something that I've tried and this is how it works, I think it can make you more relatable. But I look at it the other way. Being an advisor has made me a better farmer, not so much because of the technical skills that I've picked up, the fact that I've been able to learn from so many really good farmers. So they say if you're a 
cropping farmer, you might have 30 crops in your career. Like that's 30 crops you'll manage. Whereas I reckon as an advisor, you've got 30 times that because you've probably got 30 clients. So you're seeing 30 different crops each season. So it gives you such a great opportunity to learn from some really good operators. I just love that I get to see this in action, <laughs> to see how you guys do it. See the thought process. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying it's probably a bit of a do as I say, not as I do operation at your farm, mate. There's probably some parts of it that are like that. Our regional block was at the end of a one-way road. So you really couldn't see much of our farm and there's a couple <laughs> of big hills there and, and that was really good. You get away with more stuff that way. <laughs> yeah, no one could see my mistakes. Our new block, it's got a tar road running all the way through it and I just had a check of my oats on the way here from the car paddock across. Like you can see that paddock from the highway and yeah, you can see where there's been some blockages. So definitely people keep a good eye on you as a agronomist or a consultant or an, an advisor if you're doing it yourself, but try and do everything as good as the farm system will let you. I reckon you could probably bluff a lot of the people looking over the fence though and just be like, oh, he's probably messed that run there for a reason. He's probably got a trial on his place where <laughs> his ferts run out there and his crop looks like absolute crap. I think any mistake in farming is a trial. <laughs> I was literally going to say that, that exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, just before we move on to the next topic, I've heard that your new boss is going to be a real hard ass. I think my new boss will be quite understanding of my need to go farming. I assume you're pointing towards the fact that I'm going to be working with Maria. A few people have said, how's that going to go from a relationship point of view? And that's probably a good question, but Maria and I've worked together before. LLS actually poached me from Maria and we work on the farm together. So yeah, it's a good question. And there is some things that you probably need to take into account if you're going to do something like that, but we've got structure in place so that we know that we're managing the business separate to the way our relationship as a family. I did make a joke with someone the other day that Marie's going to be the boss in the consulting business and I'm going to be the boss at the farm on the weekend while I'm working by myself. <laughs> I think Maria's going to be the brains of the operation, mate. <laughs> so we couldn't have a podcast with Cal and not ask about tropical grasses. What do you think the most important aspect of tropical grasses is that farmers just aren't quite getting right? Is it establishment, fertiliser, nutrition, weed control? What do you think? That's an awesome question, Rowan. No wonder you're taking over <laughs> this job from me. I think there's a couple of things and it depends where you are. So around the north of the Central West, producers have got establishment down pat. We know how to do it. In those sort of situations, there's some work to do on nutrition. You often see that digit grass or tropical grass paddock that's after its third or fourth year really isn't performing. That's a phosphorus story. So you've had a three years of cropping to clean the paddock up and then because we know it grows on light soils and they produce a heap of dry matter, people just go, oh, well, it's pretty right now. Now it's established. So I think there's some work there we need to do in terms of soil nutrition and a lot of the time it's a phosphorus and nitrogen story. I think the other side of things is grazing management. We know that those tropical grasses can go from dormant to flowering in six weeks. So it is quite hard to get the right amount of stock onto a paddock like that. I've just come from a producer meeting and I was just talking to a producer and we've had this exact same conversation. It's about working out what you want out of that paddock. So whether you're after some high production grass to turn off trading stock, and if that's the case, you've got to keep it quite short. You've got to keep nutrition up to it. If your goal is to build a standing haystack for some cows over winter, your management needs to change. But really understanding what you're trying to get out of those grasses 
and managing them appropriately, I think is where we need to go in terms of grazing management. I'm actually interested. I don't think I've really ever asked you this question before. Why tropicals? How do you get into them? Uh, it's the location I live in. So tropical grasses have really changed the profitability of so many farms around the Coonabarabra and Binaway, Barradine area and further afield. So those grasses will grow on soils where very little else will in terms of improved pasture. They produce so much dry matter. Country that we often call Goanna country is now able to run in the middle of summer two steers to the hectare. They're a really important part of that area. I was an agronomist in that area. I had to learn about them and know about them. In saying that, I was interested in them. I watched my grandfather grow console love grass when I was a kid. I think it was my grandfather gave me Bob Freeburn's Light Soils book. I remember it sitting next to my bed at uni. (laughs) Seeing the change that it can make in unprofitable country is probably what sort of drove me down that line. I'm just imagining a little cow sitting in his bed late at night, sheet over his head with his little torch reading Bob Freeburn's (laughs) Tropical Pastures. Mate, I think the question burning on everyone's lips is what's go in a country? So go in a country is a country that a goanna would need a packed lunch to move across. <laughs> That's how some of the country around home used to be known as. So it's made that marginal country more productive, more economic. Well, it's made it productive. It probably wasn't before. Mate, just another project that you sort of helped deliver for local land services was the dual purpose cropping trial that we ran at Bogengate and at Pearly War. Do you mind talking about that? Yeah, so dual-purpose cereals have always been a big part of the production system in central New South Wales and there's always been a dual-purpose site at Coonabarabran for as long as I can remember. We were able to get some federal funding to help producers adapt to changes in climate and in market and at the same time we realised that that trial wouldn't be going ahead. So we decided to put that money into putting that trial in. Dual-purpose cereals are a great way to manage changes in climate as we know we can graze it if the season goes with you you can pull stock out and take grain off it or or we can just continue to graze it to the end of the crop so it does give you some options in a variable season it was a good opportunity for us to make sure that our producers knew we were around we knew that our producers wanted that trial to happen so us being able to run it created quite a bit of buy-in in the community we got a lot of agronomists to those sites and I think that's something that we had a, a focus on at the time is trying to engage more with agronomists. So, yeah, I guess that's a bigger picture of the dual-purpose trials. Yeah, so how are you using them on your own place? So I don't grow dual-purpose cereals, only growing forage crops and that's purely because if I was to grow dual-purpose cereals, I'd be the only person within sort of 20 k's that was harvesting anything. Some of our hill country especially on our new block, a lot of our best soils on top of a plateau and you'd probably be hard-pressed to find a contractor who'd take the header to the top of it. It's beautiful, flat farming country on top, but, yeah, not easy to get to. So I've done the sums dual-purpose cereals versus for my system on my farm. Comparing dual-purpose cereals to a grazing cereal, I'm better off getting the extra couple of months grazing. Just the weight gain pays for the grain that I'm missing out on, so... That might not work for everyone. We don't have the scale that a lot of grain producers have, so therefore we're not dealing with as good machinery. And in my system, that works best for me. Getting back to that practicalities question that Timmy asked before about balancing what's the best 
piece of advice with what's practical. Yeah. The other day we were out at a tropical grass paddock with a variety that is fairly new and probably isn't completely proven and standing in front of that group of people who were all blown away by how cool this grass looked really made a good point to me and something I mentioned to the group there that what works on one farm may not work on others. So whenever you're going to a field day or a training event or anything involved in educating yourself in agriculture, it's really important to have a look at why it works for someone else. Grab the bits that apply to your farm and run with it, but don't just have a look at what one person's doing or one bit of research tells you should work and go, okay, I've got to run with it. It's got to work for your farm. Yeah, there's definitely like a eat the meat, spit out the bones kind of thing. You can find a lot of good information in different states, different parts of the country kind of thing, but it's not always applicable. Yeah. I don't like to provide a recipe to people. As advisors, it's really important that we give people information so that they can make a decision that works on their farm. If you're too prescriptive and just say, this is the system you've got to run with, these are all the answers, then that's not going to work. So going back to the dual purpose trial, can you give us an example of a surprising revelation that you discovered in amongst that work? I was very impressed with the triticales. One of the takeaway messages for me, and, and I will grow some triticale at home, not I haven't this season, but I will in the future because of its tolerance to acid and aluminium soils. But just the dry matter it produced, the grain production that it produced, like as a profit point of view, it was the most profitable crop when I modelled that. But I also think we've got a lot of interest in silage at the moment. It was quite a bit later than the barleys and wheats and it seems to fit for our area, it seems to fit that silage job so much better. So that milky dough stage in a period when it's not too wet to cut and ensile the crop. So if I was to take a couple of things away from it that we probably should be looking at more triticale. The only thing I will say about triticale is it's really high energy. It's really good quality feed. So your dairies, your piggeries, poultry places are all really keen to bite, but they don't have a lot of storage. So they're not going to want to buy it in one lot. You can't deliver it just into a silo system. You've got to have on-farm storage. The other issue with on-farm storage, because it's so high in energy, everything wants to eat it. So it is quite hard to keep insect pressure out of it. So if you're going to grow triticale, you need to be able to market it well, you need to be able to store it and you need to be able to keep the insects out. So air added silos, you think? Yeah. I used to have clients that grew a lot of triticale that were using like the grain sausages, silo bags, and they work well for a short period of time. But I think they're a good system to integrate into your grain storage system. Once the birds and pigs work out what's under that white plastic, it all falls apart. It's a free-for-all. But in those first couple of months, I think that that's a really good option. And then, so you might clean them out first and then go start emptying your silos. I was actually interested in asking him a question just to get out the point of how one learning that I got, but I wanted to get it out of cow instead of me talking about it, was that each variety was like its own little animal. Like you couldn't treat them the same, that if you understood how they worked, the physiology behind each plant, you could adapt it to your farm and it would work well and then other farms it wouldn't work as well. That's something I got from that. Like as in kitty hawk is a very popular one and it's great for a grain-only variety if you don't even want to graze it if you're further east, but... Some guys just prefer Illabo because it's a greater biomass potential or planet. or Like they're all very different and you can't really compare too much. Yeah, you make a good point, Tim. I guess the variety that yields the best, whether it be grain or dry matter, isn't necessarily the best crop 
for a specific farm. I don't think that there's one specific crop, even if it is the highest yielding, that's that everyone should go out and start growing. I think the oats are a really good example. We had some grazing variety oats, so they're not really dual purpose oats in that trial. And if you looked at that trial results, you'd throw them out the window straight away because the lowest dry matter production, obviously the lowest grain yields. We were working on wedgetail for our cutting dates. By the time wedgetail was ready to cut, those oats were up in head. So if you were managing them from a producer point of view, you would have had stock on them probably three or four weeks beforehand. They'd still be growing. They'd still be vegetative and still be producing dry matter for you. So you'd be getting some massive weight gains. That isn't the case if you look at our trial data. So it is about managing those varieties for themselves. It is very hard to manage them in a job lot like we do in a trial, but also working out what outcomes you want on your farm. If you need grain, if you've got the infrastructure to manage grain, well then sure grain's a good option, but you might be growing just a, a grazing oat because that works better for your system. Triticale may not work for everyone. If you had really heavy soils, you probably wouldn't be growing a triticale. You could probably get better yields from a wheat or a barley. You take that data that you see at a field day and work out how it's going to apply to your farm. You've obviously been involved with Seeds for Success since the start. You're an OG podcaster on the show. (laughs) Can you tell me when you worked out you had a face for radio? Yeah, thanks, mate. (laughs) I I am looking forward to not being in a workplace where I'm bullied (laughs) so much. But I've been holding on to that joke all day. (laughs) (laughs) Is there an answer for that? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one, I reckon. Got him. (laughs) Mate, so what has been the biggest lesson that you've learnt doing the Seeds for Success podcast? That's a tough one. I knew a lot of the producers that I've interviewed. Some of them I met to do the interview, but quite a few of them I knew prior to doing the interview and stuff that we spoke about that I didn't know about. There was things that I learnt from that producer that I wasn't expecting to learn. There was some of those podcasts actually went in a totally different direction than what I had planned. It's been a really good opportunity to sit down with someone and formally have a conversation. Like if you're sitting in a ute with someone driving around their paddock just yarning, you'll learn a lot from that producer, but you probably wouldn't go in as much depth. Like having a microphone in front of you gives you the okay to drill into someone's situation. So I think that's probably been one of the benefits, I think, of doing this is being able to ask those questions without sounding like you're nosy or you're really able to inquire and get to the bottom of things. So that's probably something that I'll take away and be probably a bit more open to doing even without a microphone. So just for those who might have come on late, like myself, not been part of the crew since the beginning, how did Seeds for Success start? Like Jill Kelly and I, and actually you were there, there's a few of the ag team went to Darwin for an extension conference. And at the time we were in the middle of pretty ordinary drought conditions and Jill and I had sort of been talking about different podcasts that we'd listened to. I've always been a bit of a fan of Richard Feidler being an agronomist sitting in a ute all the time. Conversations was a big part of my day. When that sort of came out on podcast and you could get it on your phone, it was like all my Christmases came at once. So Jill and I were talking about podcasts we enjoyed and we just started talking, maybe this is an opportunity for us to get farmers to share their learnings to other farmers. So it goes back to the driving around in a ute. I've learned so much from farmers and Jill had said the same thing but we didn't know how to get those learnings out to the wider community. So we thought we'd give podcasts a go. And I think I actually wrote it into a project plan, thinking that it would be fairly easy to just develop a podcast and 
put it on the internet somehow. So we put it into the plan and we guessed how much money it was going to cost. And then we looked into podcasts and realized that it wasn't so easy and that we would have to get a company to help us do it. And yeah, it sort of just all kicked off from that. But Jill was a big driving factor in the podcasts and not just getting the podcast going, but developing the tone and how it was all sort of going to roll, like Wavelength that does the work with us were really good at helping us set that. But I think Jill had a lot of impact in how this podcast sounds. Infotainment is what we call it, is it? <laughs> well, it's got to be entertaining. People won't listen to it unless it's entertaining. And I think the beauty of this podcast is there is so much learning in it. People have been really open to sharing their knowledge and we've done surveys because we need to monitor and evaluate whatever we do and make sure that it's actually working and the survey results show that it, it does give people knowledge. People have, have said that they've learned things from it and the results have also said that it can be a bit of an inspiration to make changes within their business. Yeah, just touching on the survey and you did deliver a bit of an overview of the project and Seeds for Success to APEN, the, the Australian Pacific Extension Network. That's right, yeah. I'm just hoping I got that right. <laughs> Australasian Pacific Extension Network. So what are some of the things that you did deliver and the learnings, I hate that word, real government word, but what are some of the learnings from the podcast? Because we're not just agronomists that like getting out there and having a yarn. This is for a purpose, isn't it? So what we found is that producers are learning stuff from the podcast. So they're actually building up their knowledge and they're inspired by it to make change, but generally they're not making changes on their farm purely because of the podcast. So I think it creates an appetite for more knowledge and skill development. A podcast is a really good way for us to get people interested in making changes in their business, but it doesn't do everything we need it to. So we still need to be running workshops and on-farm trials and demos and working with producer groups to give people probably more the skills that they need and help them to actually make that change. Thank God. I thought we'd been so successful that we'd done ourselves out of a done job and made ourselves redundant there. No, no. Tim uses the old one tool in a toolbox when he's talking about resistance management. I'm sure he stole that off someone. No, I made it up, surely. <laughs> It's just another tool in, in our extension, which extension is just a, a word we all use that no one else does for sharing knowledge and skills and getting people to change. So it's just another tool that we use. I think it's opened up a new skill set in UKL. Can you imagine looking back when you started this show with Jill that you'd be flashed with a microphone and know to use all the dials on this bit of gear we've got look in front of us? No, I just assumed someone else would be doing this sort of stuff and I'd just be lining up speakers. Yeah, I was a bit surprised when they suggested that I do some of the interviews. And I have to say, like early on, I was pretty ordinary. I remember doing a, <laughs> I remember doing an interview with Jason and Kylie Katz. And Jason and Kylie are amazing operators. Good short on people. Yeah, they are. Great operators. They do an amazing job out there. And I'd love to re-interview them now, knowing what I know about interview skills and developing this craft. I think I probably undersold them. Like it wasn't one of my better podcasts. I haven't told that to Jason and Kylie, so I don't know if they'll listen to this and go, yeah. They probably exactly heard right. that one, mate, and gave up on the <laughs> gave up on us. <laughs> Definitely it's a new skill. It's not something that I had thought that I'd be using in my job as an advisor or an agronomist. So aside from talking to us here now, hanging out with us all the time, what's the best part of being 
a mixed farming officer with LLS. I took this job in the middle of a drought and the reason I left what I was doing to do it was because there was a need. Things were pretty ordinary in the 18, 19, 20 and people were calling out for help and I think LLS as a whole, our ag team, our vets stepped up and did a good job. I think we turned our grazers into feedlotters in a matter of weeks and months. So there's a lot of job satisfaction in that. There's a lot of job satisfaction in being needed. Like we, as you two would as well, like you get a lot of phone calls through your day with people just asking for your advice. And that's something that I enjoy talking to people about things that I'm passionate about and interested in. As you know, I can get a bit sidetracked and talk for a bit longer than what whoever was on the end of the phone was expecting. But yeah, that's probably one of my favourite part of this job is connecting with producers and answering their questions, being able to help them. Well, mate, it has been a real highlight of my past two years as being able to call you and just have a yarn and the advice you give me in a professional sense has been really good. Not in a personal sense though. No, in a personal sense, terrible, terrible. (laughs) Any personal advice, but go to you for agronomy, that's for sure, mate. So you will be missed here at LLS. Thanks for coming on the show, Cal. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time. Mm-hmm.